Faith Hedgepeth, a proud member of the Halua Saponi Native American tribe, was cordial, aspirational, and a passionate dreamer. Her deep love of life and desire to help others, as well as her drive to achieve greatness and shine as an example of unprecedented success, was cut short by an unexplainable, unsolved murder in the pre-dawn hours of September 7th, 2012, leaving all who knew her across the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill campus and the entire state of North Carolina at large grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. As a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built on observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the homicide of Faith Hedgepeth, and the peculiar puzzle pieces left around the crime scene in the Hawthorne at the View apartment complex. This is Cold Case Detective. Faith Danielle Hedgepeth was born on September 26, 1992, to parents Roland and Connie Hedgepeth, just south of Warren County, North Carolina. She was born at Nash General Hospital and measured in at eight pounds and nine and three quarter inches. Faith was then the youngest of her siblings, joining two older brothers and a younger sister. All six of them, including Roland and Connie, were official members of the Haliwa Saponi Native American tribe. Located in the northeastern areas of North Carolina and largely active in Faith's hometown of Hollister. The Haliwa Saponi peoples are famously engaged in the creative arts and education, holding an annual powwow each April to celebrate their recognition as a tribal nation. The tribe also utilizes a cultural program for all of its citizens, passing on their legacies through poetry, dance, beadwork, and history lessons. Faith and her family were a part of these traditions, and they meant a great deal to the Hedgepeth ancestry. Sadly, not all that happened in young Faith's life was pleasant. Before she was even one year old, her parents split up due to Roland's haphazard drug issues. Connie would later say that her youngest daughter's namesake, Faith, represented her biggest need through a volatile time in raising four children alone. Nevertheless, Faith remained a joyous fixture in Hollister and the Haliwa Saponi community. Even as a child, she exuded a bright and bubbly personality and was quick to make friends with other kids of her age. One of her earliest friendships blossomed before she could even crawl, with fellow Hollister resident Gabrielle Evans, who was born mere months before Faith. The two were inseparable. Gabrielle magnetized to Faith's friendly nature and infectious humor. Into their teenage years, Faith was known for deeply empathizing with her peers and understanding when someone needed a shoulder to cry on. Faith was an effortless mediator, naturally gifted in eliciting smiles and curing the melancholy. By the time she was in high school, Faith had most of her future sorted out while still enjoying middle adolescence. She was active outside of her schooling, participating in the cheerleading program while leading various extracurricular organizations. At the same time, Faith maintained an exemplary grade point average, always considered an honors student and on track for a successful college career. In fact, Faith knew early on that her dream was to study at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill famously nicknamed the Southern Part of Heaven. She had plans of becoming a doctor or maybe dabbling in education. Regardless, she knew she wanted to help children and specifically those in her lifelong home of Warren County. 
Her best friend, Gabrielle, told investigative reporter Tom Gasparoli in his 10-part podcast titled Pursuits, his own search for Faith's killer, that they came up with an extensive plan to do such a thing, together as aspiring doctors. Gabrielle mentioned that Warren County wasn't a well-known place in North Carolina, without much material value or economic growth, growing from its hyper-rural roots. And yet, despite the generations of decline, they sought to change that. Faith wanted to be a paediatrician, and Gabrielle a gynaecologist. They had plans of opening a medical office in their little hometown, with Faith taking care of the children and Gabrielle taking care of the mothers. Their mission of compassion and community activism stemmed from their unconditional love within the Haliwa Saponi families and awareness that their fellow citizens had little resources despite their togetherness. It was a perfect microcosm of Faith's overarching personality. In 2010, Faith realized her dreams and accepted the Gates Millennium Scholarship for the University of North Carolina. She started courses in the full semester, majoring in Native American biology, and immediately fell in love with the campus. Within her first few weeks, she met fellow freshman Kira Dixon, and the two swiftly formed a tight-knit friendship. When Faith took the spring of the 2012 semester off from school, Kira helped Faith find short-term housing at an off-campus living quarter at the Hawthorne at the View apartment complex with a mutual friend, Karina Rosario. The two girls got along fine together, yet Faith still planned to move into another apartment complex once her financial aid kicked in later in 2012. In a dark twist, however, those plans never came to fruition. And just two weeks after the autumnal courses began, Faith Hedgepeth was found bloody and beaten to death one gloomy Friday morning in her bed. The southern part of heaven was a paradise no more. Let us now turn to a timeline of events leading to Faith's murder. At about 5.45pm on the evening of Thursday, September 6, 2012, Faith Hedgepeth attends a rush event for the Alpha Pi Omega sorority chapter on the UNC Chapel Hills campus. Alpha Pi Omega is the oldest Native American sorority in America, and very meaningful to Faith's college experience. Faith leaves the rush event at 7.15pm intending to return home to continue writing an essay on the history of her Haliwa Saponi tribe. 45 minutes later, at around 8pm, Faith joins up with her roommate, Karina Rosario, and the two visit Davis Library on the university's campus to study together. During their study session, between 8.30 and 9pm, Faith engages in conversation via text with her father, Roland, about her excitement and hopes to join the Alpha Pi Omega sorority chapter. Later in the evening, Faith leaves the library for a while, but what she does is unknown. She returns at about 11.30pm. As the clock strikes midnight on Friday, September 7th, both Faith and Rosario leave the Davis Library and return to their shared apartment at the Hawthorne at the View Complex off-campus. Thirty minutes pass by, and at 12.30am, the girls team up once more and leave the apartment and head up to The Thrill, a nightclub in downtown Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It is known for admitting people under the legal drinking age of 21. At 12.40am, Faith Hedgepeth and Karina Rosario enter the thrill. By 1am, the duo meet up with friends and dance for a while. 
An hour ticks by, and at around two in the morning, Rosario feels sick with an upset stomach and informs Faith she wants to leave. At 2.06am, CCTV security footage captures Faith and Rosario leaving the nightclub, the last confirmed video of Faith Hedgepeth. By 2.30am, the girls arrive back at their apartment, and Faith aids Rosario in returning to bed. At around three in the morning, the unnamed woman living below Faith and Rosario's unit hears a series of thumping noises, akin to the sound of furniture toppling over or bags filled with cement dropping on the floor. At about the same time, Faith's Facebook page is accessed, although whether by her or someone else is unknown. At exactly 3.40 a.m., a text message is sent from Faith's cell phone to the cell phone of Brandon Edwards, a former boyfriend. The text reads, quote, Hey B, can you come over here please? Rosario needs you more, aha. You know, please let her know you care. Three minutes later, at 3.43 a.m., a correction text is sent again from Faith's phone to Brandon's phone with the single word, quote, than. Supposedly a replacement for the, quote, aha, in the first message. Just over half an hour later, at 4.16 a.m., Brandon replies via text asking who exactly sent the previous two messages. There is no reply. At around the same time, Rosario also attempts to reach Brandon by phone, reportedly calling him from her own phone. She receives no answer and instead contacts fellow University of North Carolina soccer player Jordan McCrary, asking for a ride. A few minutes later, at 4.27am, Rosario believes Faith to be asleep in her own bedroom and leaves the apartment. She gets into McCrary's car and departs from the complex. This would be the final theoretical sighting of Faith Hedgepeth. By around 4.30am, Rosario arrives at another friend's residence in West Longview Street. McCrary leaves her and Rosario spends the remainder of the early morning hours here, asleep. Six hours later, at around 10.30am, Rosario awakens and solidifies plans to get a ride back to her own apartment. She calls Faith, but can't get hold of her as it repeatedly goes to voicemail. She instead contacts another friend named Marisol Rangel, who agrees to take her home. A few strokes before 11am on Friday, September 7th, 2012, Rosario re-enters her unit at the Hawthorne at the View Complex and calls out Faith's name. When she doesn't respond, she goes into Faith's room and finds her lying on the bed, motionless and unresponsive, partially nude but wrapped up in a quilt, covered in blood, having sustained heavy blows to the head. She immediately calls 911 and Faith is proclaimed dead. In the immediate days and initial findings, law enforcement quickly determines Faith's death to be a homicide as the result of blunt force trauma to the head. The murder weapon, most likely the empty rum bottle, found in the apartment. Police also collect semen from the crime scene and match its DNA profile to other strands of DNA discovered in the room. However, this information is kept secret from the general public, media outlets, and the Chapel Hill community. Within the next two months, multiple organizations around Chapel Hill and North Carolina donate funds as reward money in the search for Faith Hedgepeth's killer totaling at around $40,000. Authorities are hopeful the money will spur someone to come forward with information, as their resource pool is limited. Over the next two years, information about the investigation into Faith Hedgepeth's undeniable murder 
is kept under strict confidentiality by the Chapel Hill Police Department. Why this is the case is never fully explained, as the Chapel Hill PD usually share details about their high-profile investigations. The only key piece of evidence announced during this time comes in January of 2013, when police announced that the DNA found on Faith's person and in the apartment belongs to an unidentified male subject. The FBI follow this report with a theory of their own, that the man probably knows Faith on a personal level. Other than this, the records are kept sealed by mandates of the local courts. In September 2013, the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation is called in to aid the investigation. Neighbours of Faith and Rosario at Hawthorne at The View tell state detectives their expertise is welcome, as they felt that the local Chapel Hill PD were ill-equipped to handle such a complex case. After almost an entire year of dead-end investigating, in July of 2014, the case records are unsealed and given to the media for appropriate analysis. However, many details are redacted from the public eye, such as Faith's social media records, addresses connected to her profile, and computer files. Fully released are the transcripts to Rosario's 911 call, a timeline of their previous night's escapade, and the text messages sent to Brandon's cell phone. Then, a couple of months later, in September 2014, two full years after Faith was slain, the official autopsy is finally announced to the public. This includes new facts, such as blood under her fingernails, hinting that she struggled with her killer. In addition, a new clue from the crime scene is also identified. A peculiar and hastily written note left near Faith's body, reading, quote, I'm not stupid, bitch. Jealous. In 2015, Crime Watch Daily announces a new discovery in Faith's case, this time a key piece of evidence in the form of an accidental voicemail left on one of her friend's cell phones. How or why the voicemail is recorded is unclear, and many assume it to be an accidental dial. But the mostly inaudible contents are quite eerie, and some argue that it actually captures the audio of Faith's final moments, the timestamp in the phone records notwithstanding. Despite the big break in the case, the voicemail leads to zero arrests. In September of 2016, more than four years after Faith's murder, the ABC News program 2020 releases a composite image created by genetic testing company Parabon Nanolabs that is said to resemble the person whose DNA profile was discovered from the semen and other artifacts analysed from Faith's crime scene. Again, however, another massive clue brings in no new prime suspects. Presently, the investigation into the homicide of Faith Hedgepeth is still ongoing by both local, state, and federal investigators. They have tested over 800 subjects for their DNA to find a match to Faith's killer, ranging from her friends to classmates to fellow patrons at the Thrill nightclub, and have yet to find a positive match. Whoever the killer is, they are likely still out there, walking among us. Only a testimony or confession away from solving this horrific tragedy. There are many key data points in Faith Hedgepeth's murder case, all harbouring deeper mysteries than surface-level observation allows us to see. Whether it be the peculiar 911 call made by Karina Rosario, the inadvertent yet foggy voicemail recording of Faith under duress, or the suspicious chicken scratch note left at the scene of the crime, all of the clues could lead anywhere and everywhere. 
However, they could also be nothing more than red herrings, objects that seem to have vital meaning simply because they don't yet make sense in the context of the investigation. That is why we choose to highlight the one piece of evidence that is rooted in science and cannot be argued against, that of the DNA strands discovered in Faith's bedroom and in the semen collected from her person. As mentioned previously, the strands were sent to the Parabon Nanolabs in Virginia for forensic scientists to analyze the phenotype of the DNA profile and create an image of the likely perpetrator using its sequencing and possible physical characteristics. In other words, quote, predicting eye color, hair color, skin color, freckling, face morphology, and ancestry. While what they discovered couldn't print out a crystal clear photograph of the killer at large, it did give investigators and the general public a general description of who to look out for, and a fallback system to be able to match other subjects' DNA against the mystery strands from the crime scene. In 2016, the details from the nanolabs were released. Based on DNA phenotyping, the killer was confirmed to be a male with a highly probable Latino ancestry. His region of origin was concluded to be 30% likely from either Central America or Southwestern Europe, but the results also included South America and portions as Africa as possible backgrounds. Analysts at Parabon were over 99% certain that the suspect does not have fair skin, suggesting it most likely to be either dark or a light olive coloured at an 84% likelihood. They are 94% confident the killer has brown or hazel eyes, and 93% confident that the hair is black and their face is void of freckles. This phenotyping did not produce statistics for probable weight and height, but the image provided had the suspect suggested to be 25 years old at the time in 2016. It is essential to recognize that these results are not certain, but with confidence levels over 90%, it's safe to assume the killer matches most of these characteristics. Even if they don't, the DNA is still a surefire way to convict a suspect if they're caught and produce a match, making the DNA strands the most important case point discovered to this day. For a closer look at Parabon's digital sketching on the perp's face, follow our Google Drive link in the show notes to find the case photos where we have uploaded the photograph. Let us now turn to the most prominent theories in answering the murder of Faith Hedgepeth. A lot of the early theories that still circulate amongst case followers center on Karina Rosario, Faith's roommate, friend, and both the last person to see her alive and the first person to find her body. What sleuths can't make sense of are the suspicious details of the two audio recordings made public in Faith's case file, the 911 call made by Rosario, and the voicemail containing garbled yet disturbing conversations. In terms of the 911 call, some point to the fact that Rosario never clarifies who Faith is to the dispatcher outside of calling her, quote, my friend. She also tells the dispatcher that Faith appears to be unconscious, yet refuses to approach her or touch her to check her body temperature as directed. Some theorists claim the entire call itself sounds staged, and point to the fact that near the latter half of the call, Rosario goes out of her way to mention repeatedly that the room seems different than how she left it, how there are items in Faith's room that didn't belong there, and how there must have been someone else in the apartment before her return. 
She also never mentions her friend that accompanied her to the apartment, Marisol Rangel, and the fact that if she was truly struggling to approach Faith's body to touch it, she could have asked Marisol instead while she was on the phone. Of course, none of these observations are anything more than peculiar coincidences, and it must be remembered that anyone who calls 911 after stumbling upon a mutilated body is not going to act or speak in the clearest state of mind. Yet, when combined with the other interesting subplots of Rosario's possible role in the case, it does seem like the first pebble in a mountain of suspicious evidence. In terms of the voicemail left on the phone of Faith's friend, both investigators, experts, and amateur sleuths are now in conflict over how Rosario might be involved and what the voicemail means to the case. Chapel Hill Police and other tiers of law enforcement believe that while there may be an argument taking place on the voicemail, it was timestamped on Faith's friend's home at 1.23am, a time in which Faith was still at the Thrill nightclub. Thus, the garbled audio, rapping sounds, and unintelligible conversations could not be a recording of Faith's murder. They reason that with the loud music and general noisy atmosphere of a nightclub, the voicemail's audio could not be incriminating. I have here the original voicemail recording that we retrieved from fellow investigative reporter Tom Gasparoli. The full recording is over three minutes long. I will play an unedited excerpt from the clip right now, so you can hear for yourself and form your own conclusion as to what you believe might be happening. Please be advised the audio quality is quite rough, and it may be distressing for some listeners. Despite the local police disregarding this piece of evidence, Crime Watch Daily wasn't so sure when they gained access to the recording. They hired audio engineering mastermind Arlo West, known for his enhancement skills of hard-to-hear sound samples. What he discovered was much more damning than what police theorized. We no longer have access to the full, edited voicemail audio itself, but we do have transcripts and accounts from Arlo West. He found that the audio was capturing four separate people, two male subjects and two female subjects, one being Faith. It sounds as if Faith is in distress, seemingly tied up and in pain, at one point exclaiming, Ow, my head, and my hands are on fire, help. The other three subjects are screaming at her, with the female specifically angered at Faith regarding lies she told and demanding she put up a fight. West also claims that at two separate points, the names Rosie and Eric are used. It just so happens that Karina Rosario would often go by the nickname Rosie, and that the Eric mentioned was her ex-boyfriend, who had a well-known vendetta against Faith, and the perceived role she played in keeping him and Rosario legally separated. In fact, one of the transcripted lines has Faith saying, quote, I can't believe you did it, Rosie followed by a male saying, quote, just throw it in the river. Near the end of the voicemail, one of the males says they are going to sexually assault Faith after the second female asks them to, quote, go help Eric. 
Theorists take this recording to mean that Rosario was the one to kill Faith, and that she was aided by Eric Jones, and they had a third person assisting them who was the one to rape Faith and leave the semen. Now, this doesn't account for the timestamp left on the phone at 1.23am, because Faith couldn't have been killed at the thrill, as CCTV footage recorded her leaving perfectly fine. However, Arlo West has an explanation for this, too. He claims the software on the phones of both Faith and her friend were known for technical glitches and reporting inaccurate timestamps on voicemails. He says that the towers around the area transmitting their phone's data were also unreliable, and that simple metadata recordings were likely to have inconsistencies. West is certain that the recording captures the last breaths Faith takes as she is being murdered. And, for what it's worth, so too does Faith's father, Roland. West cites that his audio enhancements didn't actually conclude there was background music, as he picked up no percussion, bass, or synthesizer sounds. And the notable absence of other common nightclub sounds, such as glasses clinking, meant the recording must have happened elsewhere. Despite West's technical work, it's important to remember that the transcriptions and explanation of faulty phone software is still just a theory. Others have listened to the recording with enhancements of their own, and claim they can indeed hear background music. One transcriber listened to the recording and immediately recognized a song in the background, being Booty Work by T-Pain. Their transcription also detailed an argument taking place between multiple female and male subjects, but it didn't include specific names, like Rosie or Eric. All of this serves to explain just how mysterious the voicemail is. It's incredibly hard to pick out what exactly the subjects are shouting about, and what the high-pitched noises actually are. If the timestamp is incorrect, and the voicemail does record Rosario or other perpetrators ending Faith's life, then it might play the biggest role in the case. So, if Rosario was the female in the recording, and did play a part in killing Faith, how does one explain the other facets of the timeline that night? Some people believe that Rosario's story about leaving the club due to a stomachache was a lie, because if she truly wasn't feeling well, why would she then leave the house again at 4.30am to meet up with someone else? These theorists also have major issues with the unlocked door scenario. It should be stated that Rosario's ex-boyfriend mentioned before, Eric Jones, had kicked down two doors in Rosario and Faith's unit prior to the murder, and was well known for inciting domestic issues during his relationship with Rosario. In fact, she had a restraining order against him. Not only this, but Eric lived in the same complex at the Hawthorne at the View Apartments. Thus, it leaves people wondering how Rosario could just accidentally forget to lock the door, when someone with a violent history against her and Faith was living just a few doors away. That is, unless she wasn't the last one to leave the house, or if she left it unlocked for someone who planned to show up later that morning. They also believe that Rosario could have been the one who accessed Faith's Facebook and sent the messages to Brandon Edwards, to make it seem like Faith was still alive and active. Then, in order to create an alibi, she left to go and spend the night with a friend and get a ride with an uninvolved third party, claiming Faith was asleep when she left, leaving the door unlocked. It is a circumstantial theory, but it is plausible.
but it does also leave the question of why Rosario would kill her roommate. Some suggest that Rosario was upset with Faith for her connection to her ex-boyfriend Brandon, that she was jealous of possible romance between the two and felt Faith lied about her relationship with him. They claim this is the backstory to the note left at the crime scene that was written before Faith was murdered. These theorists explain that the part reading, quote, I'm not stupid, bitch, was written by Rosario to be left for Faith, who then wrote jealous as a response. Experts agree that it's possible, as they are certain the word jealous was written by a different person to the one who wrote the other words, and they match the penmanship to that of a female writer. This could have been the spark that set Rosario in the wrong direction. Others believe Rosario was simply envious of Faith's life, seeing her accomplishments and career success as a threat, thinking Faith was pushing her away from Brandon and Eric and controlling her life while lying about her intentions. Of course, if Rosario was indeed involved with the crime, she wouldn't be the only one. The semen collected from Faith's body and the processing DNA strands procured from it confirmed there was at least one other male subject in Faith's room the morning she was killed. Could they have been assisting Rosario? And if so, who could it have been? The first person targeted by police was Eric Jones, the oft-mentioned ex-boyfriend and nuisance to Faith and Rosario. Eric had a history of domestic violence, specifically against the two girls. He kicked in doors and even made a threat to kill Faith if Rosario didn't get back together with him, according to official police reports released in 2014. Also brought under a microscope were the very disturbing messages Eric left right before Faith's murder, such as a statement uploaded to his Facebook cover photos that read, quote, Dear Lord, Forgive me for all of my sins and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and the ones who wish me dead today. He also sent a text to another friend that asked for forgiveness for what he was about to do. Unlike Rosario, whose theories and motive are very vague, Eric Jones has a much clearer motivation. He threatened Faith in part because she was the one who convinced Rosario to file for a restraining order after his violent temper exploded on numerous occasions. He could have seen Faith as the enemy standing in his way, someone out to get him and ruin his life. Again though, if Eric helped Rosario kill Faith that morning and was a part of the crime scene, he also was not the only male subject there because he allowed police to test his DNA and it was not a match with the DNA found on Faith's corpse. So if Eric or Rosario swung the rum bottle that struck Faith, a third person bore witness, a third person whom Eric and Rosario know and who matches the Nanolab's profile. Besides the DNA factor though, Eric and Rosario teaming up in Faith's murder has further inconsistencies. If Eric was such a threat to Rosario and menace to her livelihood, why would he be the one she approached to help pull off such a criminal feat? If the two detested each other, joining forces to cover up a murder appears entirely out of character for both of them. Sure, their threats and unhappiness towards Faith might have been shared, but putting aside that chaotic history on the whim of murdering a young woman makes little sense. Their theoretical involvement also means that they killed Faith between 2.30 and 4.30 a.m., but the only noise complaint coming from neighbors was a couple of thumps at around three in the morning. 
If the voicemail we've heard captured the homicide taking place, there would have been high-pitched screaming, arguing, and loud music erupting from the apartment, almost certainly alerting the other neighbors and giving them something else to inform police about. And finally, in regards to a third person, the second male figure who would be responsible for leaving the DNA at the crime scene, why would someone help protect Eric and Rosario's innocence by leaving DNA behind that wasn't either of theirs? simply to throw off police. That in itself is a bizarre way of involving oneself in a felony. The official autopsy did not find conclusive evidence that Faith was raped, and the presence of semen was contradictory, but that doesn't mean it was planted. Other experts who have analyzed the scene still believe Faith could have been sexually assaulted without major marks of trauma being left, which, horrifying though it certainly is, does make more sense than a random bystander or group going above and beyond to cover up Eric and Rosario's involvement. While it is not impossible, it is highly unlikely. In addition, both Eric and Rosario have been very cooperative with police. Eric has since deleted the suspicious social media posts and Rosario moved out of North Carolina soon after the murder, but both have continued answering the authorities' questions and have maintained their innocence. So, what other suspects might we consider? Many people closer to the case in and around Chapel Hill have used the names of local male figures to point fingers at, subjects who have yet to allow police to take their DNA, or who have reacted suspiciously to photos and other media reports about faith. It's important to remember that silence does not preclude guilt. Just because someone doesn't want to give up DNA samples doesn't mean they murdered faith. Many innocent people from minority communities do not trust police because of the years of systematic racism and because the prime suspect is believed to have been a person of color or from a Latino or Native American background. It is essential we recognize the broader context and history of policing before we make brash judgments about individuals who are nervous to give up a piece of their DNA, not knowing what it could warrant in their future. Some theories revolved around the possible involvement of an unknown serial killer or serial rapist. However, there was no pattern of similar crimes in the general vicinity before Faith was murdered, nor did a string of violent assaults occur in the weeks, months, or years after Faith's case. The University of North Carolina and Chapel Hill have both had their fair share of criminal activity but nothing to suggest Faith was a victim of a larger murder spree or a killer with a specific MO. Other theories wonder if someone had been following Faith for a while, someone targeting her in a planned assault and waiting for the right moment to strike. They could have been watching Faith under camouflage, taking notes on those she went out with and when she went out. When they followed her on the morning of September 7th, they kept a view of her apartment, and when Rosario left with another friend at 4.30 a.m., they got lucky with the front door being unlocked and took advantage of the opportunity. When Faith fought back, they decided to take their violence a step further. It would explain why Faith had fought back so viciously and why semen was found at the crime scene. College campuses are notorious hotspots for sexual predators and the suspect could have encountered Faith at the thrill, followed her home, awaited their opportunity and raped and killed her. It should be noted that the police collected DNA evidence from countless patrons known to frequent the thrill and from those who were around the nightclub the night Faith made her last appearance there. 
Around 800 men have been tested, but the trail of theories have run dry. Still, the desperate hunt for the next break in the case continues. Before we divulge our hypothesis of Faith Hedgepeth's unsolved murder, we want to make it known that our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detective are purely logical speculation based on evidence, circumstance, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in each video, and we do not attempt to promise certainty or an expert guarantee on the findings we reach in closing. We simply observe, research, and report. In terms of Faith's killer, we agree with reporter Tom Gasparoli's statement that he was probably just on the outskirts of Faith's social group, an acquaintance that didn't know her personally, but knew of her through friends and classmates. What their motivation was can't be said for certain. Maybe they were turned down after making romantic advances. Maybe they were jealous of her and her varied accomplishments. Maybe they were seeking revenge for her companionship with a former lover of their own. The possibilities are endless, but as crime scene experts have concluded, this was a crime of passion, of seething malice, and carried out by someone with an emotional connection to Faith. It is hard to say if the killer acted alone or with other subjects. Police have not clarified if they believe Faith's murder was to be at the hands of a solo perpetrator or a group, which does leave open the potential for multiple people with knowledge of the homicide to be out there. Authorities have mentioned that whoever is responsible and those who know of their complicity would have changed their behavior in the days, weeks, and months following their crime, closely following the case and monitoring it for updates. This is theorized to be the reason why the records were sealed for so long, so the unknown killer couldn't have a leg up on police and could be kept in the dark. If one thing is for certain, it's that the 800 or so men whose DNA has been sampled to compare with the semen from the crime scene is not as big a number as it seems. 800 eliminated suspects is better than zero, but think about the tens of thousands of people who could have crossed paths with Faith in her time at UNC, in Chapel Hill, or from her hometown in Warren County. That leaves a lot of doors open for someone to take advantage of her independence and strike when no one was watching. Committing an atrocious crime, then disappearing back into the crowd, blending back into society as if nothing had ever happened. It's why it is absolutely vital for anyone who might know something related to the crime to reach out to the proper authorities. Even if your tip in mind doesn't relate to a suspect whose appearance matches the DNA profile sketch, no piece of information in this case is wasteful. It could be the missing key detectives need to unlock a room full of answers, bringing forth the justice that the Hedgepeth family have fought so diligently for these past eight years. In the meantime, let us honor Faith's memory not by reducing her life to a single night of unfortunate events, but praising her for all she accomplished in her young life and planned to accomplish later on. Faith broke down the barriers that small town life in a rural community can bring forth and sought not only to venture out and create a life for her own, but to gain experiences and bring them back to her community 
to share and help sponsor growth in a town that so desperately needed it. Faith's selfless drive to make others feel hope and happiness was a rare yet welcome trait for a person of her youthful age to share, and her legacy of bringing joy, laughter and purpose lives on in the hearts of those who knew her. Faith loved her Halua Saponi tribe unconditionally and embraced a future of leadership and communal fellowship, aiding the women and children of her Native American community without ever giving it a second thought. It is undoubtedly true that Faith would have flourished in her remaining years in college and fulfilled her dreams of becoming a pediatrician in Warren County. She absolutely would have made an excellent doctor, as she was a brilliant mind combined with a compassionate soul. Faith Hedgepeth simply made the world a better place to live, and by fighting for her memory and sharing her legacy with others, we can do the same. All it takes is a little faith. This is Cold Case Detective. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cold Case Detective podcast. Should you wish to delve deeper into the mystery, you can follow the case file link included in the show notes, which contains important photographs, documents, maps, and further reading relevant to the case. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating wherever you listen. It really helps us expand our reach and bring awareness to the cases we cover. If you would like us to investigate a specific case, perhaps even one close to home or that of a loved one, please fill out the submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new episode.